0: If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Exodus chapter 6, verses 13 to 27. It's another genealogy. I know you're wondering why Pastor Mark's not up here preaching this morning, but it just didn't fall in the cycle. So (laughs) we're going to be talking about the history of us today. And so um, let me read you this illustration. While many cities and villages along the Indian Ocean suffered catastrophic losses from the December 2004 tsunami, the port city of Pondicherry, India, and its uh, 300,000 inhabitants were spared. Just beyond city limits, 600 people were killed by the devastating tidal wave, but Pondicherry withstood the tsunami. Why were they protected? Well, the answer began 250 years ago when France colonized the city. The French built a massive stone seawall. You see it there in the picture this morning. Year after year, the French continued to strengthen the wall, piling huge boulders along its 1.25-mile length. The French stopped building Pondicherry seawall in 1957, but their work prepared them for a disaster that would occur five decades into the future. Isn't that fascinating? And so, you know, they were preparing for something that they didn't even know was going to happen, and yet the work that they did helped us save 300,000 lives. I think that's pretty cool. <clears throat> you know, God can use things that happened in the past to prepare us for the future. I can definitely say that God's used my past to prepare me for my future. Growing up, uh, I grew up in a pastor's home. So that obviously prepared me for pastoring. I kind of had an idea of what that looked like. Graduating from college with a business management degree and a second degree in economics has been very helpful, uh, even as a pastor. Working in the secular business world for three years helped to develop some skills in me that I need and I continue to use. Working in two different children's ministries provided some incredible opportunities for growth. So all of those past experiences prepared me for pastoring and molded me into the man that I am today. When Judy was younger, she used to tell people that she wanted to be a flight attendant so she could travel the world. I keep trying to take her all over the place, you know. Hopefully get to go to Israel in April. But, <clears throat> but one individual challenged her one time to consider being a teacher. You know, and she thought about that Uh, she was like, well, I never thought about being a teacher before, but it made a lot of sense to her. It made perfect sense. In fact, she had been teaching children with her mother in children's church for years. And she had a lot of cousins. That's what she told me. So she was teaching them too. And so those past experiences led her to pursue an elementary education degree in in college with an early childhood endorsement. And so I tell people that Judy is a natural-born teacher, It's funny because when uh, the students come into her class, they have no idea what they're in for. But when they leave, they leave better boys and girls. She's just that incredible of a teacher. And so I learned a lot from her when I was teaching children with Child Evangelism Fellowship. Some of the things I used with children there, I learned from my wife and what she has known over the years. So how many of us here today... Are, um, are where we are today, I should say, because of past experiences. They could be good or bad. We may have continued in the family business or in the same industry that our parents were in. We may have pursued a particular career path because of the influence of a teacher or a mentor. We may be averse to certain addictions because we watched a family member go through a gruesome addiction. So we're like, no, nah, I don't want to go down that path. I know what that looks like. We may be single because we experienced parents that struggled in their relationship and eventually got divorced, and we're like, you haven't seen a good example of what a family looks like. We may be successful and wealthy today because we went through poverty as a child and determined to live a different life. And so the list could just go on and on. You put your own uh, idea in there today. What has God used in your past to prepare you for your future and what you're doing now? Moses, once again, doubted his calling, as we saw at the end of the message last week, and because of his fear of speaking, um, but God already had a plan in place to help him. His brother Aaron would be his mouthpiece, and God did not choose Aaron as Moses' helper lightly. He didn't just like, oh, I guess we can just use your brother. No, he knew where he came from and where he and his family would go in the future. And so the genealogy that we're going to look at today is important because it showed Aaron's pedigree, which proved his worthiness to be Moses' helper. And so what the author wants us to understand today is that God can use our past to prepare us for our future. And so as we just ponder that today, would you bow your heads with me? as we commit to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the past. Whether it was good or bad, Lord, we thank you that you allowed those situations to happen in our life to mold us and shape us into who we are today. And Lord, I pray that that we would just worship you today for what you have done and what you are continuing to do and what you're going to do into the future, Lord God, through us. I pray, Lord God, that you would guide and direct us as we look into your word today, that it would transform us into becoming more like your son, Jesus. So, Lord, we lift this message up to you for your honor and glory today. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we just have four points today. The first one is transition out, and that's just verse 13. So if you have your Bibles, look at Uh, Exodus chapter 6, verse 13, and this is what God's Word says. Now, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And so this verse transitions the reader out of the narrative that we've been talking through or, or preaching through, and it's a simple statement about how the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and Pharaoh. And it's just a brief summary statement of everything that the Lord said to Moses and Aaron. It's very brief. The Lord had spoken to Moses in more detail at the burning bush in Horev. And I'm certain that perhaps the Lord confirmed everything that Moses shared with Aaron at the mountain of God in that same area in the region of Horev. And he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. Now what we're going to see today, our first principle is this. God's purpose... Reaches backward and forward. So we're going to be looking at backward first. We're going to see that, that God's purpose for Moses and Aaron reaches back to their forefather, Levi. God's purpose for us reaches back to our ancestors also. It is, the, it is God's sovereignty at work in our lives. He knew long before we were born what his purpose was going to be for us. Aren't you grateful for that today? He knew right where we were going to be today. He placed us in our family of origin for a reason. He knew what he wanted us to be in the future, so he placed us in exactly the right home to accomplish that. Maybe he puts you in one of these uh, homes, a pastor's home, a missionary's home, a farmer, teacher, accountant, doctor or nurse, tax collector, banker, social worker, factory worker, military personnel, technician, information technology, media, and the list could go on and on, right? Right? What did your parents do? What did your grandparents do? For some of us, he placed us in a new family through adoption so that he could accomplish his purpose for us. He gave us natural abilities um, in certain areas so we could use them for his glory. And because God is eternal, he has seen our entire life from beginning to end, and he's orchestrated specific events to direct us according to his plan and purpose. Do you believe that today? Or you think, well, I'm just kind of aimlessly going through life. God is working. He's sovereign. Maybe you're ready to take this first next step today, and that's just to worship the Lord for accomplishing His purpose in my life through my ancestors. He's prepared us. You know, His purpose reaches backward, and it reaches forward. God can use our past to prepare us for our future. And Moses begins the genealogy by starting with the families. Of Jacob or Israel's two oldest sons, <clears throat> and so we're going to see that um, in you know verses fourteen through nineteen. But we need to understand that there's this connecting to Israel and Jacob. That's important. The potential reason that uh, <laughs> uh, Reuven or Reuben and Shimon or Simeon, as we say today, are listed is so that the author and the reader can connect Moses and Aaron back to Israel or Jacob. And once the author reaches uh, Levi, the line that Moses and Aaron came from, he does not, list, uh, he does not need to list the Is, uh, Israel or Jacob's other sons, because there's more, right? And so he says, these are the heads of families. In the footnote of the life application Bible, it says this, the Hebrew for families here, and in verse 25, refers to units larger than clans. So they are talking about a, a vast number of people here. And so the use of this Hebrew word is perhaps based on the fact that this genealogy is telescoping. I'll explain that in just a moment. Uh, And and it's meaning that it's just skipping several generations to get where we are. I'll explain all of that as we go through this genealogy today. And so the author goes all the way back to Jacob's firstborn son. Look at uh, verse 14 with me, if you would. And this is what God's word says. These are the heads of their families. The sons of Reuven, the firstborn son of Israel, were Hanok and Palu, Ketzron, and Carmi. These were the clans of Reuben. And so these same sons are listed in Genesis chapter 46, verse 9, and Numbers chapter 26, verses 5 to 6. So we see the, the same people listed in those two genealogies as well. Then in verse 15, we see Simeon's sons, and uh, so it says that The sons of Simeon were Yemuel, Yamin, Ohad, Yachin, got to get that hack in there, right? Yachin and Soher. Uh, yeah, these are fun to pronounce today. So. Um, and then, of course, Shaul. And so, as you see in that particular verse, then it goes on and says the son of a Canaanite woman. So that's Shaul's mother. And so, these were the clans of Simeon. And so, uh, Shaul's mother is mentioned here as a Canaanite woman, and we're not given her name, but McKay says this, Shaul's mother is probably mentioned because her background was unusual. She was outside of the Israelite clan, right? Right? And so these same sons are listed again in Genesis chapter 46, verse 10, and Numbers chapter 26, verses 12 to 13, except for Ohad, who's missing from the list in, Genesis, or in Numbers chapter 26, verses 12 to 13. Now what we do is we come to this third son of Israel. And we see it in verse 16. These were the names of the sons of Levi according to their records. Gershon. um, Yeah, Kehoth and Mirari. Like I said, they're fun. Uh, And then Levi lived 137 years. Now, the reason that his age is listed is perhaps because it was over 100. That was pretty significant at that time, as it is for us today, right? When someone lives up to 100 or beyond 100, that's pretty significant. So perhaps that's why um, the author lists uh, Levi's name at, at this point, or I'm sorry, his age at this point. And so, as we continue on in verse 17, we see then that he starts listing some of Levi's grandsons. And so, it goes on and says, the sons of Gerashom, by clans, uh, were Livni and Shimi. And then he goes on, and he lists the sons of Kehoth, and they were Amram, Yitzhar, Kevron, And Uziel. And so we get all kinds of that. And then it says that Kahath lived 133 years. Again, just a significant number, uh, lived to perhaps beyond what others were living. And so uh, that was important. And then it lists um, the sons of Mirari. And so we see those um, in verse, where are we at? 19, there we go. It's tough keeping track of all this. So the sons of Meruri were of Machli and Mushi. How many of you want to name your sons that? These were the clans of Levi according to their records. And so the sons of Levi are also listed in Genesis chapter 46, verse 11. And then the sons and some of the grandsons of Levi are listed in Numbers chapter 26, verses 57 to 58. So what we can gather from this is that God can use our past to prepare us for our future. There was a reason that they needed to come through the line of Levi. And so when I talk about telescoping, there's obviously a jump in generations from the genealogy of Levi to Moses and Aaron's family. Ends in his commentary, says, for example, according to Genesis 46.11, Cahoth is one of the sons of Levi who made the initial journey into Egypt. Hence, there must have been uh, about a 350-year span between Kehoth and Moses. Since the entire stay in Egypt was 430 years and Moses was 80 at the time of the Exodus. In Exodus chapter 7, verse 7 and 12, verses 40 to 41. Which makes it unlikely that Kehoth is Moses' great-uncle. So if Kehoth is there when they went into Egypt... Moses is born while they're in Egypt, and it's been 430 years. When they come out, it seems like that's impossible, right? Because we know that Cahoth did not live over 430-some-odd years. So there has to be this gap. And it's probable that the uh, the Amram of verse 18 is not the same Amram that we're going to see in verse 20. So throughout the Bible, we see the, name, the same name being used with different parents, but all part of the same genealogy. You know, we see that in our modern culture today, right? My Pappy Johns was Fred Arthur Johns, my dad is Fred Allen Johns, and my brother is Fred Allen Johns II, right? Now, those are all kind of clumped together, but some families use grandparents' names or great-grandparents' names or even further back when choosing names for their children. So we see this happening even in our culture today, that they use, we use the same names. And so trying to um, determine how this genealogy works is not the focus of the genealogy. Rather, it's there to show the readers the credentials, the pedigree of Moses, and especially Aaron for the commission God has given them. So... There also seems to be a natural break in the genealogy at the end of verse 19 when the author used the same phrase as he did with Reuben and Simeon's line, and it's this. You see it in verse 14, 15, and 19. These were the clans of. So there kind of has this little bit of break before we hit Moses and Aaron's family. And so we see that in verses 20 to 25. Look at verse 20 with me if you would. This is what God's Word says. Amron married his father's sister, Hilhared, who bore him Aaron and Moses. Amram lived 137 years. This Amram, again, significant amount of time that he lived, 137 years, that's why it's highlighted here. <clears throat> and so um, what we see here is that marrying one's aunt was not considered wrong at this time. This is in the ancient Near East. This is before the, 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 the Levitical uh, laws. Uh, in Leviticus 18, we see a listing of unlawful sexual relations that God uh, mandates. Then. Leviticus chapter 18 verse six, we read these words: "No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord." But then God makes it a little more clear what He means by close relationships. He starts listing a whole bunch of them. And then in Leviticus chapter 18 verse 12, he lists this one specifically, "Do not have sexual relations with your father's sister, your aunt." She is your father's close relative. So again, this was happening prior to the Levitical laws, and so it was not considered wrong at that point. But since that time, yes. So the marriage of Amram and Yahared was prior to, like I said, these are Levitical laws given by the Lord. Aaron and Moses were born as a result of this marriage, but we also know that they had a sister named Miriam. We see her in other passages of Scripture. And then again, we see that Amram lived 137 years. And then what we're going to see next is in verse 21, 22, and 24, we, I just said family names, like question mark. And the reason is perhaps the best explanation of what seems like a return to the listing of Cahoth's uh, sons is that later generations used the same names for their sons. But notice in that listing that uh, Kevron, you might pronounce it Hebron, is not mentioned again. Maybe that wasn't a very popular name at that time. I don't know. He's not listed again. Also, some of the names will appear again in narratives about Moses and Aaron, so they would have been around at the same time Moses and Aaron would. They would have been their contemporaries. That's why, again, if we go back to the previous one, talking about uh, this genealogy from the uh, first time that they enter Egypt till this one, it has to be the same name used again. And so let's dive in. Let's look at verses 21 and 24. So we see this, the sons of Yitzhar were Korach, Nepheg, and Zechari. And then it goes on and it says, uh, well, yeah, go down to verse 24. And then the sons of Korach were Asier, I'll get it here, Elkanah, and a and a v and so we see that in verse twenty four, and then it goes on and says these were the Korike Cor- clans, and so <clears throat> what I want us to do today, you know, as I was working through this passage of scripture, I was talking to Pastor Mark this week, and I'm like, it's really hard to come up with principles in a genealogy, right, and connect it to your life. Like, how, how am I going to do that? I'm like, oh, I was struggling so much, and I started sharing with him some of my ideas. And So what we have to do is we actually have to look at some of these uh, people, some of these uh, people in the genealogy, and we're going to have to jump out of Exodus, or maybe later in Exodus, to find out some things that they did that's going to help us to apply this to our lives today. And that's what we see with Korak. We see his rebellion in Numbers chapter 16, verses 1 to 35. He opposed Moses and Aaron and their leadership. They were Levites, as Korak was, so they served in, in the Lord's tabernacle, but they also wanted to get the priesthood that Aaron and his sons held. And it was against the Lord that this group banded together. And so the a footnote um, in the Life Application Bible, in Numbers 16, 1 3, it says this Korak and his associates had, been, had seen the advantages of the priesthood in Egypt. Egyptian priests had great wealth and political influence, something Korak wanted for himself. And so we see the outcome of this opposition when Korak and his comrades, uh, by allowing the earth to open up and swallow them, and then secondly there was a 250 of them that were burning incense and the fire of God or the fire comes out from the Lord and consumes them and kills them. We see that in Numbers chapter 16 verses 31 to 35. And so This was not the first time, though, that someone spoke out against Moses' leadership. His brother and sister did it, as uh, we see, Arian and Miriam, as we see in Numbers chapter 12, verses 1 to 16. And when they spoke out against Moses, the Lord asked them to step outside the tent of meeting. He said, I need to have some news for you. And he came down in in a pillar of cloud and had Arian and Miriam step forward so that he could speak to them. And when that cloud lifted, which was the presence of the most holy God, Miriam was covered with a skin disease that was white like snow. They call it leprosy back in that day and age. So the principle that I want us to understand today from Korak's life is that God holds us accountable for how we treat his leaders. Korak and his group... And Miriam were held accountable for speaking against and opposing God's chosen leader. God holds us accountable for speaking against and opposing his chosen leaders in our life. It could be a boss, a supervisor, children. It could be your parents. They are an authority over you. It could be a teacher, a pastor whomever God has put in authority over you. God uses different ways to hold us accountable today. At least, I haven't seen the earth open up and swallow up a group of people again. Maybe that's happened with earthquakes. I don't really know. I don't know the mind of God. But perhaps some of the illnesses we experience today may be God holding us accountable. We may not have advanced at our job because we've not respected the leader that God has placed over us there. I want you to listen to Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. <clears throat> this is Paul writing to the Roman believers, and this is what he says. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, we, are he who rebels against the authority, is rebelling against what God has instituted, And those who do so bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what's right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. And so that's pretty important. I think that's pretty clear. What we're supposed to do, and maybe you're ready to take this uh, second next step today, and that's the repent of speaking against or opposing God's chosen leader or leaders in my life. And God will hold us accountable for how we treat his leaders. Now, fortunately, for Korak, his line did not die out because of his sin. Whew. In Numbers chapter 26, verse 11, we read that uh, his line didn't die out. So God obviously spared his sons. Perhaps they didn't agree with their father in his, opos- in, in his opposition of Moses and Aaron, and they spared. So what we see then, that's 21 and 24. Let's go back to verse 22 then. We see then the, the sons of uh, Uziel were uh, Mishael, Elitzaphon, and Sithri. Okay, so now, now we're ready for verse 24 and 25. We finally get to Aaron's line. As we get to Aaron's line, um, we read these words. Let me just read them for you from verses 23 and 25. Aaron married Elisha, yep, daughter of Aminadav, the sister of Nakshon, and she bore him uh, Nadav, and Avihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. And then verse 25, Eleazar, son of Aaron, married one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Pinhas. These were the heads of the Levite families, clan by clan. And so, like I said, we finally get to Aaron and his pedigree, because this is going to be important as we move forward in the narrative in the weeks to come. And so, um, Elishavah, Uh, family. We see her father is uh, Aminadav and her brother is Noxshon. And so Alexander's commentary says the marriage of Aaron to Elisha is possibly highlighted because her father Aminadav and his son uh, Noxshon are both named in lists involving the ancestry of King David from the tribe of Judah. This link might have enhanced Aaron's standing within the Israelite community. So he marries a woman which is the royal line. And so you have the priestly line, the royal line all together. And, you know, eventually down the line, Jesus is our great high priest, right? Some connection that's all taking place there. And then also Hamilton points out that her brother, Noxshon, is the individual from the tribe of Judah who assists Moses in taking the census, as we uh, see in Numbers chapter 1, verse 7. So Aaron and Elisha have four sons and they're grouped together. If you notice that in the text, if you look down there, it it says uh, Nadav and Avihu, and then Akama, and then it has Eleazar and Ithamar. And so the only only thing I could come up with is why they're grouped that way is perhaps um, what happened to the two oldest sons. We find this narrative in Leviticus chapter 10 Verses 1 to 5, this is what God's word says. Aaron's sons, uh, Nadav and Avihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. Aaron remained silent. Moses summoned Mishael and Elitzaphon, sons of Aaron's uh, uncle Uziel, and said to them, come here, carry your cousins outside the camp away from the front of the sanctuary. So they came and carried them, still in their tunics, outside the camp, as Moses ordered. And so God was serious about the role of priest and the purity of worship to him. That's our third principle today, is that God is concerned about our worship being pure. Now, I want you to just hold on to that thought because we're going to come back to that in just a moment. We have a negative uh, kind of example here of two priests, but I'm going to show you a positive one in just a moment. We're going to explore that under Aaron's grandson, um, Pinchas. So the second group was Aaron's two younger sons who served as priests with uh, uh, Eleazar following his father as high priest eventually. And so um, Eleazar's wife then, we're not given her name, but that she is the daughter of Putiel, um, and then she bore him this son. And his name was Pinchas. And so we go back to our first principle, because all God is actually, or the author, I should say, is actually talking about things that are going to be happening in the future at this point. And so God's purpose reaches both backwards and forward. So Pinhas was zealous for God's honor, as we see in Numbers chapter 25, uh, verses uh, 1 to 25. I'm sorry, 1 to 15. Let me read those for you really quick. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women, who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods, so Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of these people, kill them, and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel." So Moses said to Israel's judges, each of you must put to death those of your men who have joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor. When an Israelite man brought to his family a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel, while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting, when son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear through both of them through the Israelite and into the woman's body then the plague against the Israelites was stopped but those who died in the plague numbered 24000 the lord said to moses pinhas son of elazar the son of aaron the priest has turned my anger away from the israelites for he was as zealous as i am for my honor among them so that in my zeal i did not put an end to them therefore tell him I will make my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. The name of the Israelite who was killed with the Midianite woman was uh, Zimphri, uh, son of Salu, the leader of a Simeonite clan. And the name of the Midianite woman who was put to death was Cosby, daughter of Zer, a tribal chief of a Midianite family. So you see what happened here. We see that Aaron's grandson uh, uh, was zealous, right, for the worship of the Lord. This takes us back to that third principle, that God is concerned about our worship being pure. We have to be careful that our corporate worship is not characterized as unauthorized. Our worship has to be done in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord. We also have to make sure that we are worshiping the Lord and not idols and idols are anything that takes precedence over the Lord in our lives. That's what an idol is. Is our worship at church focused on God or on something else? When we're here worshiping, are we thinking about the style of the music or the volume of the music or somebody expressing themselves in worship or some other thing? Or are we focusing on God? Is our personal worship pure and free from idols? And so maybe you're ready to take this third next step today, and that's just to evaluate how I am worshiping the Lord to make sure that it is pure. Now we see um, that uh, we already talked about Ithamar, um, but here the author concludes the genealogy by stating that these were the heads of the Levite families, clan by clan, which trans- is- transitions us to the final point. It takes us back to our big idea today that God can use our past to prepare us for our future. And so our final point this morning is transition in. Look at verses 26 to 27. This is what God's word says. It was the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. It was the same Moses and Aaron. So we're transitioning back in. At the beginning, the author transitioned us out of the narrative to highlight the credentials of Moses and Aaron. Now he's transitioning us back into the narrative. um, And he says, these are the same guys. Just want you to know. He wants us to know that the same guys he was talking about at the beginning and whose genealogy we just reviewed uh, are still in view. And the order of uh, the brothers' names is first Aaron, then Moses, because we've just finished talking about Aaron's family line, but then the Lord uh, and then the Lord directed these two men to bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. The word divisions is significant here because, as um, uh, Tigay says, the Israelites would not let would not leave Egypt as fleeing slaves, but as an army marching to the Promised Land in military formation. So there's significance in that word divisions. Aaron and Moses were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. And then the author, if you notice, reverses the names to Moses and Aaron to prepare us for the return to the narrative where Moses will be like God to Pharaoh and Aaron would be his prophet. Wow, we made it. Aren't you glad? And so, as we review this morning, are you ready to worship the Lord for accomplishing his purpose in your life through your ancestors? Do you need to repent of speaking against or opposing God's chosen leader or leaders in your life? Do you need to evaluate how you are worshiping the Lord to make sure that it's pure? And as a body of believers, we can worship the Lord for accomplishing his purpose in the life of our church through our spiritual ancestors. And And if we've spoken against or opposed God's chosen leaders as a church, we need to repent and we need to strive to have worship that is pure. As we think about this concept is that God uses our past to prepare us for our future, I want to close with this illustration. Carlos uh, Farrar shares his journey from communist Cuba to faith in Christ. From the earliest time I can remember, I had an intense longing for peace. Born in Havana, Cuba in the early 1950s, I was aware from the young age that our country was in a constant state of violence. At night, it was common for our family to hear gunfire and bombs going off in the distance. Uh, These were the beginning years of Fidel Castro's Cuban Revolution. On January 8, 1959, Castro marched into the streets of Havana, and I thought peace had finally uh, been achieved. It wasn't long, however, before ordinary Cubans began to grasp the true nature of the new communist regime. The government started taking our farmland and businesses, which roused a movement dedicated to overthrowing Castro. Seeing no future on the island, we decided to make our escape later that year, boarding a commercial ship headed for Veracruz, Mexico. We left in the middle of the night, taking nothing but the clothes we were wearing. My grandfather had some distant cousins living in Mexico City. After we landed in Mexico, they took us into their home for a few months. In April of 1962, members of my immediate family received a resident green cards, allowing us to enter the United States legally, and we left for Miami. Then a breakthrough happened. A Baptist church in California answered my father's application to relocate from Miami. This church sponsored our family so that we could begin a new life in Santa Barbara. Its generous people found a job for my dad, rented us a house for six months, and supplied us with basic necessities. I couldn't help but wonder what was motivating these acts of compassion. Why would these people display such love and generosity when we were all but strangers? The question lingered with me for years. I decided to attend the University of Texas in Austin. As a student, I was confronted uh, i was confronted uh, by some of the uh, biggest questions of life, questions about career, family, and faith. One day, I heard a knock on my door, uh, dorm room door. I opened it to find two students who told me they were sharing their faith in God with others. They asked the question I most needed at that juncture. Would you, uh, yeah, would you want to have a relationship with Christ who wants to bring you inner peace and eternal salvation? I immediately said yes, and we prayed together. Soon thereafter, I thought back to the people at that Baptist church in California, and a light bulb came on in my brain. Why had they helped us? Now it made perfect sense, because Jesus had loved them so abundantly, they wanted to share that love with others through their generosity and kindness. A few years later, the home mission board of the Southern Baptist Convention, now the North American Mission Board, came calling, offering the position of financial controller. After taking the job, I heard that my new employer had been involved in helping resettle Cuban refugees in the 1960s. I asked if by chance the organization had worked with any churches in California. The leader of the mission board's refugee resettlement office called me over. He was holding a file folder. With tears in his eyes, he said, Carlos, this is the church that sponsored your family. This is your file. You can imagine my complete astonishment what amazing path the Lord had prepared for me uh, years before I even considered inviting him into my life. Nearly a half a century has passed since my decision to follow Jesus, and I have no regrets. I am eternally thankful for the people God placed in my life to bring me to, p- to the peace I always desired. Isn't that incredible? How God can use our past to prepare us for our future. Right? That's what we've been learning about today. And so that's the history of us as we look to this genealogy today. So as the worship team comes and as the ushers prepare to take up the tithes and offerings and the communication cards, would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you. Thank you for your sovereignty. Thank you for how you work in incredible ways. Um, Even before we want to be a follower of yours, even before we know what's going on, Lord, you have done that. You've done that in the life of this church, Lord, and we are grateful. We just worship you for that today. Lord, I just pray that you would work by your Holy Spirit in the hearts and minds of your people today. Help them to rejoice in what you've done in the past to prepare them for where they are today. And Lord, guide and direct them for the future. And Lord, we just lift them all up to you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand. As